We are ready. We're ready. To our white surprise, we're ready to record. This is a settler is always ready. A settler is always ready to annex the jobs of an oppressed nation. I'm waiting for someone to be mad that we're like being glib about settlers because it's such a serious text for so many people. But I am I am taking it seriously. Hopefully, we know we're inspiring some people to read it. So I hope uh, we can be forgiven for our settlerness. I don't think it's. I don't think we're being overly glib. I think um, that we're taking this book a lot more seriously than I think uh, most people who. Well, we're reading it. We're reading for it. one. Yeah, for one, we're reading it, and for second, we're um, trying to take it at face value. I think the last couple sessions um, we recognized that. As Sakai later on says, that it's not a historical text per se, although it does lean on some marginal or limited historical resources. Uh, it's primarily a uh, polemic, right? It's him trying to make sense of what he saw as an industrial worker. This is, of course, if he actually exists, but we're assuming in this that he really does exist. Despite I'm, I'm hearing more and more that he does exist and is a real person. I never doubted that he really <laughs> existed. There's a lot of proof that he's real and not just some made-up psyop by, what, anarchists or something. Um, but yeah, like so it's not a, his, a, a work of history per se, although it leans on history. It's a polemic. But on top of that, and I think this is uh, something that it's important to add, um, this is also, too, a historical text in that we should read it as a piece of history. We should read it as a text from 1983. That's a really good point. You know? Um, because I was, I was like, <laughs> whoever it was that outed me the other day, like something came up about settlers and somebody tagged me in it and they were like, I'd really, I really appreciate, uh, as a worker, making me realize how powerful and good of a text Settlers is. And um, I was like, whoa, hold on a second. Like, I never said it was powerful or good. We're giving it the serious due that it deserves as a piece of history, as a text that has had some real impact on the way that American leftists, American anarchists and socialists or whatever, look at American history and try to understand politics uh, today. I don't stand behind this book per se, uh, but what I do want to do is again take it seriously in the sense that there has to be a reason why this book calls to people, right? It calls to people today, especially in the last like what ten years or so when it's had a bit of like a renaissance and a resurgence mm-hmm. and become a key text um, for uh, third worldists, let's say, or um, probably some manner of anarchist too, right? Well, I think it's become sort of canonical for people who. Uh, are maybe the flip side of the um, polemicized class reductionists. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be an explanation for how you can be a Marxist or a revolutionary while rejecting that class reductionist position. And Settlers isn't exactly not class reductionist either. Like he still says early on that like this is a book about class, but the idea of separating class and race is... Stupid, which yeah. class reductionists self-proclaimed also sort of say that. Yeah, so yeah. it's not really like this is the anti-class reductionist book, especially as much as like uh, some like anarchists write s- stuff like that. Yeah, But yeah. I think a lot of the settlers people are semi-anarchist or like anarcho-Maoist or right, something. Right, right, right. Or radical um, liberals or something. But anyway, let's... Well, I was I want to finish sure, though, sure. because um, 
in this exchange on Twitter, you know, not a representative exchange by any means, but an exchange, somebody else, I think they were of like a left com tendency or like a more like a, a less settlers-esque tendency said to me, like, why are you reading this shit? Isn't there better texts, you know, of that period and today to try to get a true historical understanding of the same sort of processes and dynamics and historical problematics that Sakai is alluding to and like polemicizing about in this book? And I said, absolutely. Even in 1983, I think there were much better ways to get at the questions that he's posing right here. Mm -hmm. And today, certainly, historically, I think we have like a bevy of resources to understand the problematic of uh, race uh, in the working class movement in the United States, uh, the problematic of uh, the labor aristocracy vis-a-vis the task of building socialism, blah, blah, blah. Um, So what is important about this text is how important it is, you know? So we're looking at it as a historical document. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to look at it, but I'm also just learning a lot from it. Yeah, there's um, stuff to learn. Like maybe you're learning, I imagine you're learning less, but a lot of stuff I just haven't heard of. So uh, it's, I find this a very difficult book to read because there's like the face value, um, you know, following his argument, following his polemic along. But I find it very hard to actually read this book because I'm constantly like trying to judge what he's saying based upon what I already know of history. And also judge what he's saying based upon my implicit rejection of like Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, which is sort of the basis, the the ideological basis for this book. Chapters four and five, which we're up to for today's bonus episode, is I think where I would argue that the wheels really start falling off this this vehicle. For me too, it, it starts to get to a point where I, I think he's saying some things that seem a little bit of a stretch or unfair. And as far as I can, as far as I've heard, there's a lot more of that to come. <laughs> but up until I would say chapter five, actually, I was along for the ride. Yeah. But, uh, can we get into it? Let's get into it. Yeah. So chapter four, settler trade unionism. Here um, we have sub chapters: the rise of white labor. This is post civil war. Post civil war. Well, no, I mean this starts in the eight, this starts with uh, Jacksonian democracy. Okay. The eighteen thirties brings us through the civil war, and then the next chapter is about uh, imperialism, American imperialism, and how it relates, like the sort of external drive towards uh, colonization, especially in the um, Spanish-American War, uh, where the United States conquers um, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines uh, from the Spanish Empire. Um, This is really about the birth of, or the false birth, as Sakai would argue, of the American working class as a class in itself. You know, because what he wants to argue, and why I think the wheels start coming off this thing, is that there was no white proletariat. Mm -hmm. This is about the myth of the white proletariat. That despite, he says it's an honest confusion that there was such thing in the 19th century as a burgeoning, growing, um, white, uh, working class proletarian movement in and of itself that can be um, separated from this settler dynamic, which he wants to impose upon the larger dynamics of capital accumulation and the development of um, through the the nineteenth century of the labor the the class relation right he wants to actually um, take our eyes and push them away from the class dynamics the rising 
of industrial capitalism, uh, the conquering of the West and the extraction, the extractive economy that arises, and instead wants us to focus upon um, essentially the class collaboration that exists within two different nations, right? This concept of nation, very much a Leninist by way of Stalinist, by way of uh, 1960s, 1970s Maoist kind of decolonial anti-imperialist discourse, this conception of the nation, I think, really bedevils and beguiles mm -hmm. Sakai because he wants to take the sensibilities of the militant sections, some militant sections of the black proletariat in the United States of the 1960s and 70s, um, and combined with the sort of anti-imperial movements that we saw with decolonization all through the post-war period, and he wants to impose those onto the past to the point of absurdity where he basically argues that the anti-Chinese campaigns, which were very real, very violent, uh, very... Um, oppressive and very expropriative of uh, the Chinese working class uh, in the West constituted an assault on what we could consider a Chinese nation existing on the West Coast, like a, a formed, a fully formed national body, which was oppressed and destroyed and annexed by a settler, like a white Euro-America-Ken nation. Well, so the argument is essentially that the white working class comes into existence in the mid-19th uh, century, but um, part of its development is displacing previously created labor structures and markets and workplaces mm -hmm. by people like Chinese uh, workers on the West Coast. And who black slaves in the American South. Uh -huh. And Mexican, uh, I wouldn't say Mexican-American, but Mexi Me Mexicanos mm -hmm. in the Southwest. Yeah, so the oppressed nation in general, but does he de, uh, does he delineate different oppressed nations? Because or is it? Uh, it seems like he's it's like the settler nation, which is white, versus okay. I guess he would say the oppressed nations, right? Yeah, and oppressed nations. Native, of course, native peoples, native as, peoples well as well would be part of that. Yeah. So as the as there becomes more white immigration, uh, Irish, German, etc., um, these lower rungs of the white working class seek to dispossess mm -hmm. uh, Chinese workers in uh, canneries and agriculture and shipping and all this. And it's, uh, you know, the, this is a pretty long chapter. I, I don't know what Sakai's ethnicity is, but maybe it's something that hits pretty close to, I, I, I think he's Asian-American. I think so, yeah. I think he's um, Japanese-American. So, and he tells this story that I, you know, I, I had known a little bit about it from the, the Chinese Exclusion Acts, but I did not know the full extent that even the left wing of the uh, emerging American labor movement seem to be uh, fully behind this, which is really a disturbing part of history. Well, you know, he plays a little game, and he plays a polemic game, and he plays one that I, I think is, uh, I understand why he does it in 1983, but I believe it's a little misplaced. Every time the, um, the um, how should we say, the people, the POC proletariat, the, the POC nation, right, um, is confronted by things like uh, job loss, by things like de-skilling, uh, by things like concentration of capital, which means like the shedding of labor from the process. Um, it's considered a cross-class plot by the settler, by the oppressor nation 
uh, upon the oppressed nation. Sick. You know, I have to add like SIC to that because I don't believe that you could in the 19th century or indeed the the early 20th century say that any of these constitute like an actual national formation that could have risen in an anti-colonial fashion because as we see when we get to Black Reconstruction and Sakai working with um, what W.B. Du Bois you know, famously talks about and like the black freedom struggle that arises within the Civil War, there wasn't a drive towards national construction at this point from these particular people. If anything, there was a drive to fully uh, integrate themselves into the American polity, both in terms of democratic right, but also in terms of rights to be able to work. But the point is, is that when the, um, when the, Dynamic tendencies of capital accumulation, which lead to all of the dispossession, exploitation, coercion towards workers happens to, say, Chinese workers. It's a cross-class plot by the oppressor nation. When it happens to um, members of the Euro-America pseudo-working class in this book, uh, it's just like a temporary hiccup in the further development of settlerism. So there's a sort of like, it's not to say that the annexation, which he talks about, of these jobs isn't real, but it's more than simply just like a racial imposition or a racial exclu- uh, um, exclusion of uh, within the labor market. All along, in every single level, there is a capitalist class. There is a capitalist class who owns the means of production and ultimately at the end of the day is benefiting from this and is driven not primarily by settler goals, Mm -hmm. of course, but by goals of profit or rent. But there's a separate capitalist class in the oppressed nations, isn't there? Not according to Sakai. I mean, there is. So, But when like uh, settlers coming to California um, pass the Chinese Exclusion Act, that is detrimental to the Chinese bourgeoisie as well. Such as so the, the, the bourgeoisie is organizing with American labor uh, for the settler nation against the oppressed nation, including its class contradictions. That's what Sakai is arguing. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we're on the same page there. And I, this is part of the, um, uh, you know, the sort of rediscovery of the, the Tulsa riots as well. Mm. as like black wall street, you know, that's mm-hmm. part of why this, I think that narrative became so big during uh, Black Lives Matter is that uh, this idea that black people are just this singularly proletarianized oppressed group is the result of the destruction of of class structures within uh, uh, African-American society yeah. or the leveling of it at periodic times. Right. Um, and I think this is important for leftists to consider because there is this idea that uh, race is just class and black people are just workers and proletarians and that leads to um typically the same mistake that uh, leftists tend to make where they identify the demands of the middle class as yes. the demands of the working class a hundred percent and things get really obscured because uh sakai wants to call slaves african-american slaves in the south prior to the civil war the true proletariat um, it is true that they are direct producers, right? It is true that they have nothing to lose but their chains. But it is not true that they are like a class in itself in like the Marxist sense. Their relationship to capital is not as doubly free workers 
you know, uh, engaging in uh, the labor market, trying to sell their labor power on the market, uh, encountering the impediment of capital as something that can only be overcome collectively. They are instead, you know, depending on which Marxist you're um, reading, and this is a real debate within Marxist historiography, right? Slaves can be seen as constant capital, right? They aren't the proletariat. They're owned by capital. They're owned by planters, which are the planters themselves are something of a pre-capitalist formation mm-hmm. that exists within an expanding capitalist market. They have sort of romantic feudal worldview. Exactly, yeah. They, had, they look back in time to understand their own place and they try to maintain a patri- like patriarchal relations something which like famously the bourgeoisie destroys the backwards looking planter class is trying to remain is trying to like continually reimpose this sort of like familial paternalistic parochial um you know landed ideology and social relations onto the economy and onto the political economy which is of course what leads to this great epic battle between the north and the south industrial capital versus planter capital. Let's and some would it. say the completion of the American bourgeois revolution. And I would say that. And I believe that that's true. And I, I and don't what know if Sakai the, really disagrees with that either. No, but but what Sakai tries to do in this in this instance is he says that uh, it's a bait and switch, right? That uh-huh. the abolitionists didn't actually believe in black freedom and that the drive of slaves in the great general strike that W.B. Du Bois talked about uh, their struggle for freedom was actually undermined because they weren't able to instantiate themselves as a nation in the South. But if you look at the history of that period, that was not, it, perhaps it was a demand on some small margin, like of the newly freed black now proletariat or uh, sharecropping class as it emerges, right? But the demand, the overwhelming demand, not just from what passed for the intelligentsia of the African-American community, which was uh, freed slaves who previously freed, but also the clergy and the preachers who tended to be the sort of intellectual and political force within the newly freed slave community. The demand wasn't for a separate black belt, new African Republic, which is a demand that's happening in the 1960s, 1970s and 1980s, which Sakai is kind of playing around with. That was not the demand. The demand was, not just integration into the settler community, which is to say integration into the democratic polity of the United States, full representation alongside white workers and everybody else. But the demand was also one that over and over and over and over in this book, Sakai points to as petty bourgeois consciousness, which is the demand for a a plot of land for 40 acres Mm. and a mule. This was the overwhelming demand, which was to become petty producing yeoman farmers so what you're saying is that uh while it's true that the the settler working class consciousness was trapped within petty bourgeois thought which made them susceptible to bait and switches and mm-hmm. carrots and sticks of the bourgeoisie the same was also true of, of freedmen yeah and it wasn't even a bait and switch um for the freedmen as well like they are being thrust into because they're not a proletariat because they had been chained and enslaved been um the 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 ability to read and to self-organize uh, purposefully taken away from them, right? There wasn't some sort of incipient socialist proletarian consciousness that they were expressing. 
And anyways, to express that in 1964 would be a bit of an anachronism because socialism is a marginal movement at this point, and most of the European proletariat isn't organized into socialist parties at this point in time. So like, it's a very anachronistic argument that mm-hmm. Sakai is making. It's also, it, it, this was just like the air that people were breathing. This is like the instantiation of American political economy and self-governance and conceptions of liberty and freedom that were the driving force behind what newly freed slaves wanted. And the failure, uh, the failures of reconstruction are a failure of integration. It's not the failure of some 120 years later, some guy writing um, and like imposing some sort of proletarian consciousness onto uh, freed slaves of the 1860s. It, it wasn't that sort of freedom that they were looking for. They were looking for a very basic American settler-esque freedom, as Sakai would have it, which puts lie to his argument that they're a proletariat to begin with. And it also, I mean, this gets into like a, a major debate that I think was sparked within the black radical tradition in the 60s, uh, going back to the sort of historical debate over the future of African-American uh, politics between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Yeah. Du Bois, where Du Bois is more of a socialist or uh, more of a progressive or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And, you know, he's got different politics at different times, but Booker T. Washington is sort of the cornerstone of like the black petty bourgeois mindset, yeah. and still cited by by the, uh, the the right today as like the correct uh, thinker. And it was you know it was always the position on the left is that you are you are Du Boisian that this mm-hmm. is the correct historian he's a marxist and all this but in the 60s you start you start seeing um black marxists say well why would it be wrong uh if if you're uh if you're uh, a black person in 1900 to want to be a small business person or to want to enter the bourgeoisie that's what white people are doing yeah why should black people resist that right yeah exactly that's exactly the point right and this is where a lot of black leftists and Marxists start becoming black nationalists. Yeah. And, um, and this, you know, is in the direction of black power. And, uh, so this is the tradition that Sakai is writing from. Um, but it's, I don't know if that really addresses like what your critique is. No, it does. It very much does because Sakai again is imposing his conception of like a Stalinist Maoist nationhood, uh, and proletarian character to these quote-unquote nations uh, back before that even makes sense to... People would, wouldn't be able to make... Black people at the time wouldn't have been able to make sense of it. White people at the time wouldn't have been able to make sense of it. He's abstracting away from all of like the, um, the complicated history of capitalist dynamics and race in this country to try to impose a nationhood upon, say, like Chinese-American workers in the 1840s or 1850s in San Francisco saying that they actually had claim to the economy because they were the proletariat, they were the direct producers, and their nation was expropriated by an oppressor nation that was a cross-class alliance between settlers, essentially, right? And so we need to question, why do we need to understand American history in this way? Like, what is important to understand about nations? Like, as communists, should we be concerned about, like, nationhood? And is it, does it, makes sense to understand the interplay of American history as oppressor versus oppressed nations, as opposed to a more complicated and complex interplay between a working class that's never 
through the course of its history, except maybe for brief periods among a minority in the early 20th century, been able to overcome racial divides, been able to overcome skilled and unskilled worker divides, uh, industrial versus craft union divides, in order to pose the actual class question in such a way that its overcoming might be an actual possibility. And the reason why it, it feels like his imposition is uh, of this history falls flat is that hey folks sean kb here uh just a reminder that our show relies on your support so if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the antifada it's cheap there's a ton of content and it would mean everything to us so thank you and we'll see you behind the paywall the old holes that they won't give you a shot but you can get the whole pistol is gonna hit you a lot these are real words from a savage mind Unmaximized man on the average climb Who don't deserve the whole truth and only half your time Fit the life of a whole booth and only half a line In the future life, I don't even have to rhyme We'll get the entire Armageddon with only half the signs Just yields and railroads This is a special announcement for our listeners in New York and Philadelphia for the first time since our legendary Goth Socialist Variety Hour, the Antifada will be performing live with Minion Death Cult and Pod Damn America. First, on Sunday, September 10th, we'll give you a night you'll almost never forget. Steps from the Gowanus Canal at Littlefield in Brooklyn, USA. Then, on Super Tuesday, September 12th, we will be at the Franklin Ballroom in Philadelphia, PA with Well, There's Your Problem! And tickets are available now for both events, September 10th in Brooklyn, September 12th in Philly. You can find those links in the show notes. Will these historic shows usher in the first congresses of a grand podcast international? Or will we just be doing some goofy PowerPoints? We haven't really talked about it yet, but I hope to see you there. 